to Mark chapter 1. You saw that from the scripture reading this morning, Mark chapter 1. Uh, turn on your vice, open your Bible there. I strongly encourage you to follow in the text this morning. So football season is on, it is upon us, and I love spending Saturdays watching college football, or at least I used to. Anybody else like doing that? Okay, I used to do that until I had kids, and now I watch like every five plays, and then I'm distracted by whatever it is that they're doing. But I love watching ESPN's College Game Day on Saturday mornings. Anybody watch this? Yeah, it's fun. You know, you're building up to the excitement before the game, and they like to show these videos, uh, and they kind of g- give you a glimpse into the different college football programs. And the University of Minnesota which we probably know little to nothing about, apparently has a football team, if you didn't know that. And they showed a clip, a short video of the team meeting. You know, the football team was in this college-style, lecture-style room. The head coach walks in, and he brings with him a patient from a local children's hospital. And he announces to the team who this kid is, and he asks the kid... In front of the whole team, who's your favorite player? And to everybody's surprise, the kids said, Justin Juneman. Justin Juneman was the third string kicker on the Minnesota team. So who knows who this guy is? Well, somehow this kid knows Justin Juneman, and the reason that he does is because Justin Juneman had been taking time out of his schedule uh, to travel to the children's hospital to visit these kids. So nobody else knew who he was, but the kids at the children's hospital knew the name Justin Juneman. And then the coach handed this kid a t-shirt cannon. And the kid aimed the cannon right at Justin Juneman, shot the the t-shirt out at him. Those go pretty fast. Juneman stood up, caught it, one-handed grab. And everybody was kind of clapping like we didn't really know what was going on. And then the shirt unravels, and this is what it says on the shirt. Justin, congrats on earning a scholarship. And you see on the video, you see his face light up like in shock and awe. He's earned a scholarship, and then this immediately followed. His teammates erupted. It wasn't just a clapping or an excitement. It was a roar. The teammates stood up, and they started cheering with him, throwing their arms in the air, and they went and grabbed him and hoisted him up on their shoulders and were parading around the room, and everybody was celebrating with him with this scholarship. And you can see other videos of other teams and other coaches revealing to different walk-on players, hey, congrats, you've earned a scholarship. And there's just something about it that's kind of emotional. But one of my favorite things about these videos is that the teammates celebrate. The teammates are so happy that their uh, fellow teammate has earned a scholarship and really hasn't earned it because a third-string kicker is probably never going to see the field, but he's been given grace, right? And I'm waiting for the day for a coach to walk in and say, congrats, we're paying off your student loans. That would be, hopefully you can celebrate me if that happens someday. As we get ready to study Mark chapter 1, as I've studied through Mark this week, weeks prior to this, I look at this picture on the screen, and I feel like this is the tone of Mark chapter 1. There is excitement. It's something worth celebrating. Mark begins in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I read that, and I read through Mark chapter 1, and I think this is the reaction that Mark is going for. Pure excitement. 
from Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, immediately we see this isn't any ordinary story. This isn't a story about some woodworker from Nazareth. No, the description that Mark gives us in verse 1 is something significant in human history has taken place. And he begins with the beginning. It's the beginning because this is where Mark begins. This is chronologically where he begins the story, but it's the beginning because it's also the beginning of a foundational truth that will last forever. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word good news, maybe in your English version of the Bible, may be translated as gospel. We translate it either as good news or gospel, and it's the Greek word euangelion. It's transliterated for you up here on the screen. Euangelion is such an important word in the New Testament. It's foundational to who Jesus is and what his ministry is, the good news or the gospel. And we use this word a lot, but what do we mean by it? Well, in the New Testament, euangelion, the good news, the gospel, really has a threefold meaning. The most obvious one is it's a literary genre. You open up your New Testament... And the first four books that you see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are gospel accounts. It's a literary writing style, telling a story, the life, and the ministry of Jesus. Gospel, euangelion, is a literary style, but it's also the message that Jesus proclaims. If you were here two weeks ago on Labor Day weekend, uh, we studied Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, talks about the good news that's going to be proclaimed. Yahweh is a proclaimer of good news, and we see in Jesus, he's a proclaimer of good news. That's Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, and we're going to get there in a few moments. But Jesus comes on the scene, and that's what he's preaching. That's his message, good news, gospel, euangelion. But the third layer of this word and understanding this word is it's the message about Jesus. So you study through the New Testament, And Paul is famous for this. He uses this word, gospel. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul talks about the gospel that he has preached. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he equates the gospel with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we see this all-encompassing word, gospel, good news, the Greek word euangelion, it is a writing style about Jesus. It's the message. He's the messenger. He's the message Jesus taught. And it's also the message about Jesus. He's the content of the message. Now, most of my life, because I've grown up with an evangelical background, I have heard this word gospel, as you probably have as well. But most of the time, when I think of gospel, the tone I think of is this, gospel. Like, people say gospel like they're angry about it. It's almost become weaponized, like, we preach the gospel and you don't, so we're right, you're wrong. So gospel almost sounds angry. And sometimes I just want to ask people, do you realize that gospel is also good news? And you don't sound like you believe it's good news when you're saying gospel. So I just want to get a little participation from you this morning. I want us to just all say good news together. I'm going to count down from three. Can we just say that together? Three, two, one good news. And I want to try it. That was good. That was actually way better than what I was expecting, but I want to try it. I want to try one more time. 
Now, as we say it this time, if, if you didn't already do it, smile when you say it. And when you say it, if you want to say it emphatically, if you want to look like that Minnesota football team and throw your hands in the air, you can do that because it's good news. So let's try it again. Three, two, one. Good news. You can smile when you say it because it's good news. This is Jesus. He brings good news, not just to you and I, but to the world. Right? We talk about Honduras and Cambodia and Ghana. Jesus is good news for those countries. Jesus is good news for the poor and for the orphan and for those who are hurting. Jesus is good news. And so that's where Mark begins. The beginning of the euangelion of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or Jesus the Messiah. He's the Savior, and he calls him the Son of God. It's a powerful title. What do we know about the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark? Well, very few people seem to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. The disciples seem to struggle with understanding who he really is. The crowds that he's teaching, they seem to struggle. The religious leaders definitely struggle. But God knows who Jesus is. God knows that this is his son because, as we'll read in just a moment, when Jesus is baptized, he says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. So God knows it. Who else knows it? The demons know. Every time somebody's demon-possessed and Jesus shows up, they say, what do you want from us, son of the most high God? And then in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is impelled on a cross, The Roman centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. So demons, Roman centurion, and God himself, those are the characters in the Gospel of Mark who seem to understand this title. And Mark is going to slowly reveal to us who this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really is. And we're just in verse 1. So Mark has a lot of words so far that's important to talk about, but there's one thing that he doesn't include in verse 1. He doesn't say, I, Mark, am writing you the story of Jesus. He just jumps right into it. Now, if you compare Mark to the other Gospels, you know, Matthew and Luke, they kind of start with either genealogy or the birth story of Jesus and give us some background. The Gospel of John starts with this beautiful poetry, and he goes from creation to incarnation. But Mark just jumps right into it, and he doesn't even identify who it is it's writing this. Now, if you look at the top of your page, it probably says the gospel according to Mark. Around AD 125, an early church father named Papias or Papias or however you'd pronounce his name, he gave Mark or John Mark credit for writing this gospel. And from that time on, nobody argued it. Everybody just assumed it was Mark who wrote it. But what do we know about Mark? Well, Paul mentions him a few times in his letters. But even more significantly, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, he refers to Mark as his son. Now, we don't think that Mark was Peter's biological son, but we believe that Peter and Mark had a close relationship in the faith. It's almost like Mark was probably a disciple of Jesus, but being discipled by Peter. So, The Gospel of Mark is what it's called, but it was probably, we assume, heavily influenced by Peter. And you can tell by Peter's role uh, throughout the Gospel. So what we want to do for the next few months, and maybe even beyond, is we want to study through Mark 
in an intentional pursuit of Jesus. We have seven commitments as a church. If you don't know what those commitments are, I encourage you to grab one of the papers in the back and you can look through our seven commitments. We want to take these seven commitments serious. We want to ask the question, how do we live these commitments out? And we've met with the elders, we've met with the staff for the last few months, and we have talked about studying together one book in the Bible. And I really wanted to study one of the Gospels because I love studying about Jesus. And we landed on Mark. So we're going to study through Mark here on Sunday mornings. You're going to use your connect groups to discuss through this if that's the discussion method you're choosing in your connect groups. And we're just going to intentionally pursue Jesus. We're going to offer some church-wide challenges or spiritual disciplines, whatever you would like to call it. And we're going to do that as the weeks go on. We're going to get practical with it, and we're going to challenge you to go out and to live your life and to get in sync with the rhythm of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to follow through with some of those challenges. We're going to use connect groups to discuss how these are going for you, what God is teaching you. We're going to bring people up here and share their experiences. We're going to intentionally pursue Jesus through Mark. And you're going to hear me say this a few times throughout this sermon series, is that no one accidentally creates disciples. It doesn't happen by accident. Discipleship is a deliberate pursuit. If you want to follow Jesus and grow in Christ-likeness, you intentionally, deliberately pursue Jesus. Mark is one of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same or similar. If you know what the synoptic gospels are, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now you open up a New Testament, and what do you first see? You see Matthew. So Matthew comes first in the canon, but Mark was written first, according to most scholars. He was the first one to sit out and sit down and write out the gospel account, the story of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke use Mark as an outline. And then they add in some of their own stories and some of their own details. But Mark was the first gospel written. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, he relies heavily on the prophet Isaiah. There's a new exodus that Isaiah presents, and there's a new exodus that Mark presents. So let's look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. I'll give you an example of Isaiah. It says, As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. What's strange about that? As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then he quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It's a little odd, right? See, as it is written in Isaiah, quoting another Old Testament prophet. And then he goes to Isaiah, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So now he's talking about John the Baptist. He's using Malachi and he's using Isaiah as a way to introduce John the Baptist. But he starts with Isaiah, goes to Malachi, comes back to Isaiah. This is known as a Markin sandwich. And Mark does this throughout his telling of the story of Jesus. He'll start something, go to something else, and then come back to it. So if you hear me say Markin Jesus, or uh, a Markin sandwich, this is what I'm referring to. So here he's showing us the importance of Isaiah. And Isaiah shows us the prophecy about John the Baptist. Prepare the way. Make the paths straight for the coming Messiah. And look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So here's this guy, John. We call him John the Baptist because he's baptizing people. And he's in the wilderness. He's not looking like one of the religious leaders. He's not in the temple. He's in the wilderness baptizing, but he's preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. This word repent is very important. Uh, Biblically, it's important in the ministry of Jesus as well. Usually when we think of repent, it sounds like a bad word like doom and gloom. You better repent. Or something bad is going to happen to you. And sometimes that's the tone of repent. And that's kind of the tone of John the Baptist. But when Jesus uses the word repent, it's more of an invitation. But John is out in the wilderness and he's calling people to repent. The word actually means to turn and go a different direction. To do a 180. To change one's mind. About 15 years ago, uh, during the summer, I was working at Camp Deer Run. And we had the weekend off, so a few of my friends and I, we traveled to a town in South Texas, and we had to be back at camp by Sunday afternoon, and this was before iPhones, so you can't just look on Google Maps and it tells you where to go, there's no GPS devices, so if you wanted to get where you're going, you either had to remember or look at a road atlas, and I didn't want to do either one of those two, so my friend JD said, I know the way, follow me. So I followed him for about a three-hour drive to get back to camp that day. The only problem was, in his truck, he liked to drive fast. In fact, he was going way over the speed limit. So for me to keep up with him and not get lost, I had to also speed, which I thought, probably not a big deal. We're working at a church camp. We're probably going to be okay. And then we went through this small town, came up to a blinking red light, And that's when I saw the lights, and the police officer not only pulled him over, but pulled me over as well. So I watched as the officer got his license and his insurance and talked with him for a moment, went to his car, came back, wrote him a ticket, and then was walking to my car, and I had my story ready. (laughs) And as I handed him my license and my insurance, I said, listen... We're going to we'll work at this church camp, you know, work with kids all week, trying to make him, soften him up a little bit. Uh, I don't know where I'm going. I have to follow J.D. He was speeding. I didn't want to speed, but I had to to keep up with him. <laughs> and the officer kind of assessed the situation, and he said, well, you know what? I suggest that next time you find a different way to get where you're going. And then he wrote me a ticket. <laughs> but that, I've always remembered that when I see that word repent, I think of his words, and I can still hear his voice. I suggest that next time you find a different way to get where you're going. And this is what we see in the ministry of John. He is offering a different way for all the people of faith. Something new is happening, and it's happening out in the wilderness, and he's preaching repentance to go a different way. He's preparing the way for Jesus. And in Mark chapter 1, and verse 5, And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. you got to love that description in verse 6. He he looks different. He doesn't sound like he's wearing the prescribed tassels that the Jewish leaders would wear. He's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt and eating off the land, and he's out in the wilderness. This is like Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Mark presents John the Baptist as an Elijah-like figure, the Elijah who was to come. And I imagine that maybe if Mark could add a few more descriptions of how John looked, 
This is just how my mind works. I'm assuming that John had a pretty good-looking beard out there in the wilderness. Would you agree with that? You know, wearing camel's hair, leather belt, and an awesome beard. And he's out there, and something different is happening. Verse 7, he proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So just as quickly as John enters the scene in Mark chapter 1, he's already in the rearview mirror. He's pointing people to Jesus. And he's saying, I'm baptizing with water. Somebody else is going to come that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's his purpose, to prepare the way, and then enters Jesus into the scene. In verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, And was baptized by John in the Jordan. We could talk for a while about why Jesus, who was sinless, was baptized. And if you're following that guide, you can talk about that in your discussion group tonight. But I heard a preacher say uh, the answer to the question, why should I be baptized? And usually, you know, we start with the book of Acts. But this preacher said, well, for starters, you should be baptized because Jesus was baptized. So he set an example for you. And there's so many different elements of this baptism and what's taking place. But regardless, Jesus meets John out in the wilderness, out in the River Jordan, and he's baptized. In verse 10, and just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart. You know, Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is crucified, the temple curtain is going to be torn apart. And the Spirit descending like a dove on him. So we had this special moment, right? God is about to speak these words to Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit is there. It's like the Trinity is all together. And it kind of blows our minds a little bit. But this is Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and everything else that comes with it. This is the message of Jesus when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. And here the Spirit comes on Jesus in verse 11. A voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So God knows who Jesus is. He's God's son, the beginning of the good news of the son of God. I was reading somewhere earlier in the week that because of Jesus, because of the cross, God now looks at us at our baptism and says the same thing. With you I am pleased because he sees Jesus. So Jesus enters the scene, John steps back. And then quickly we jump into the ministry of Jesus. In verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This word, immediately, is a word that's used 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, and again, immediately, and again. Mark is action-packed. We'll talk about this on a different day, but in Mark chapter 8, around verse 26 and verse 27, That's the dividing line. Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8 and verse 26, that's part 1 of Mark. And then it kind of pivots and goes in a different direction. Ricky Watts estimates that from Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8 and verse 26, 47% of the first part of the gospel of Mark is miracles, action stories. It's heavy with miracles. It's heavy with action. And then from Peter's confession on the miracles slow down in the second part of Mark. We see this word immediately, and then you'll see it 41 times as we study Mark. He's in the wilderness, verse 13. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. 
He was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. There's probably a lot to unpack from that, and next week we're going to kind of come back to these two verses and study the rest of Mark chapter 1. So I'll move forward for today. But he's, he's baptized, he's in the wilderness, he's gone through the 40 days of temptation, and then we see this word, good news again. In verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the euangelion, proclaiming the gospel, the good news. So John's arrested, we can find other accounts of the gospel story and why John is arrested and what his fate is going to be, but John is arrested and for whatever reason, that is a signal for Jesus to begin the ministry, the good news ministry, the euangelion. In verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come, or the time is fulfilled. I've been studying from an NIV this week, and that's the way the NIV translation that I have words it. The time has come. The word time, the Greek word is this word kairos. There's two Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. Most often we see it as chronos, but here it's kairos. Now, kairos refers to a special event that can never be repeated. So the Kairos moment has come, it's fulfilled, says Jesus. The time has come, in verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near. So we see the kingdom of God. You know, this is central to what Jesus teaches, kingdom of God. In Matthew, most often, it's kingdom of heaven. And then John uses different language. So what does he mean the kingdom of God has come near? When we think of kingdom, sometimes we think of heaven, we think of Someday off in the future, but when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, there are future implications. But when he says kingdom of God, there's also a sense of urgency, like the kingdom has come, the kingdom is near. Some people say that in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, a better translation is the reign of God or the rule of God. It's like it's just like Mark starts his gospel quickly. The kingdom of God, the reign of God has rushed upon you. The time has come. And then what's the next word? Repent. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent. It's this Greek word, metanoia. It's the same word that's used earlier in Mark to describe John's ministry. Repent. Turn and go a different direction. Change one's mind. I like how one writer put it. Repent means to restructure your life around Jesus. Repent means to go in the way of Jesus. Repent doesn't just mean turn around and go another direction aimlessly. Repent means to go in the way of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God. Sort of like picture of this man right here. This is a true story happened a few months ago. There's a businessman lived in New York City. And he had to be at a meeting in about 30 minutes. And the old ways of getting to where he was going weren't working anymore. He had taken the subway, taken a cab, taken a ferry, and those just weren't working. He was tired of going those ways. So in a full suit and briefcase, he got his paddleboard out and paddleboarded across the Hudson River. And you can see these videos, and people are in boats filming him, and they're saying, man, this guy's crazy, and these waves are coming up over him, and he's just paddleboarding across it. Somebody found him later and interviewed him, and he said, you know what? It doesn't matter what you think, because I, I got to my meeting on time, so it worked out. But he also said, the old way wasn't working. I had to find a different way. 
And this is what John is preaching. This is what Jesus is preaching. This is what repent is, to find a new way because the old ways aren't working. And sometimes that's how it is in our lives. Sometimes because of life, we're forced to go in a different direction. Occasionally we hit rock bottom. Our decisions, our sins catch up with us. And we realize through some pain, we've got to go a different direction with our lives. Sometimes we've relied on our own power and our own merit to get it where we're going, and then that doesn't work, and we have to say it's time to go in a different direction. Sometimes it's small things that build through time, and we just say this isn't working anymore. I need to go in a different direction, and what Jesus is offering is a different way. Similar to this guy from Germany who had the same problem. He was tired of the same way that he was going, so he put his work clothes in a waterproof bag, and he started swimming to work. So the neighbors who were watching him swim to work behind their apartment started taking pictures of him, and somebody asked him, what are you doing? And he said the same thing. The old way isn't working anymore. I've got to find a new way. And in Mark chapter 1, this is what John is offering. This is what Jesus is offering. Here is another way, the best way, the way of God. So he says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the time has come. The kingdom of God, the reign of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We see this word for the third time already in the first 15 verses. Believe the euangelion, the good news that you've already shouted, is good news, is here. Now at this point, the way that our minds operate, we say, okay, if we're going to repent, if we're going to go in a different direction, if we're going to believe the good news, then give me three points in a poem. Give me the formula. What's the formula look like to believe the good news? What's the formula look like to live the good news and to repent? And what Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is, come and see. Go in the way of God, follow me, and you will see what life in the euangelion, what life in the good news looks like. So this morning, this is where we're going to conclude. Come and see. Believe the good news. Go in the way of God. And some of you, maybe your journey would start with following in the steps of Jesus at baptism. Or maybe some of you are just sitting here thinking, you know what? Life just isn't going the right way. I need to get back on the right path. And if that's you, whatever your position in life is, we're going to have shepherds around this room, as we usually do. You can come up front. You can grab a shepherd. Tony's going to come back up and lead us in a few more songs. So let's stand up. To the river.